Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, podcast listeners, to the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Kesslering. And on today's show, we welcome special guest, Customers Bank CEO, Sam Sidhu. Customers Bank is a full-service financial institution with nearly $20 billion in assets. On the show, Sam discusses what he learned in investment banking and private equity that helped him as a bank CEO, how the company's blockchain-based digital payment technology works, When COVID struck, how customers bank turned challenged into opportunity, key performance indicators and financial metrics that bank investors should track, what sets customers bank apart as an investment opportunity, and more. So with no further ado, here's our podcast with Sam from Customers Bank. Excited to have Sam from Customers Bank on the show today. I was going through your background, your career history, Sam, and a finance veteran starting at Goldman Sachs. You went into private equity at Providence Equity Partners, then Megalith Capital Management prior to joining Customers Bank. What I find interesting is you initially joined Customers Bank as a board member and transitioned to an uh, equity or executive role later on. Can you walk us through your career and how you became ultimately CEO of Customers Bank? Sure, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, Julian and Mike, thanks so much for having me. It's a a pleasure to be here today. So you you walked through some of the major milestones, uh, you know, of uh, of my career. You know, having I had an undergraduate business background at, at Wharton, grew up in Pennsylvania, outside of the Philadelphia area, in a banking family. So uh, you know, obviously had it. Uh, grew up uh, in and around banking. Never thought that I would enter into the banking industry. Definitely not in uh, in a management role. So it's quite an interesting uh, full circle and and completely. Uh, you know, not uh, not planned. But what I would say is, um, you know, I think I've always had the entrepreneurial bug in me. Um, uh, it started at a very young age with random side startups of of, uh, of uh, online retailers and things like that at very young ages. And when I say online retailer, not in today's you know sense. We're talking about a couple thousand dollars of aggregate revenue. But I was sort of playing around and and starting small businesses. Um, you know, even as uh, uh, while I was growing up. But well, what uh, the way the customers bank story all came together is, you know, I joined the board um, about 10 years ago now. So about eight years prior to my making the decision to join the management team. And at the time, I was running Michael Capital Management, which you, uh, you, you mentioned is a, a real estate private equity and development firm based in New York City. And, uh, you know, while uh, at Megalith was raising funds and starting debt funds and thinking about all these interesting ways to continue to grow the business. At peak time, our, our company was 20 employees, right? So that is large scale in New York uh, real estate private equity world. Um, and, but at the, at the same time, I was running a fintech SPAC called Megalith Financial Acquisition Corp. And through that process, the combination of the private equity and real estate development plus uh, being on the board of Customers Bank for a long period of time and helping to start some of the technology initiatives that that the bank's management team was focused on, and then really spending time on the fintech back and meeting all these fintechs that were on the asset side, the liability side, and just generally on the efficiency and technology side around the charter, really opened my eyes to one singular fact, which I had not appreciated 
is that the bank charters where all the power uh, rested and uh, the bank charters where it was going to continue to rest. And the opportunity came up to, to join the management team. I joined as the chief operating officer uh, in January of last year of 2020 um, and then uh, took over as president and CEO in July of this year. Another thing that we notice is we obviously have many CEOs on the podcast and many of them do come from an investment banking background as you did. So I was wondering, were there any major learnings from the investment banking and private equity industries that helps you in your role as a bank CEO? Sure. You know, I think that uh, uh, in investment banking, you know, I, I was in the analyst program at Goldman Sachs. And at the end of the day, it was uh, I call it boot camp. And many folks refer to it fondly as boot camp. So you're in hyper client service mode, which I think is very important, right? Our customer's bank is called customer's bank. We put the customers first, right? So right. listening to the customer, anticipating the customer's need, but in a very manual Excel PowerPoint based way, where you're just <laughs> trying to sort of deliver solutions and throwing spaghetti against the wall and and really ineffective use of the junior folks' time, but but that results in a tremendous amount of uh, of learning and, and and skills. So I still lean on the early experiences that I had in just those two years of investment banking, um, and it's still because you know while it's only two years, you you arguably do four years or five years of repetitions and of what you would get in sort of normal course of business in a typical operating company, and uh, that's really difficult to beat. Um, because you get an exposure to broad, you know, broad swaths of, while it might be industry focused, you get broad swaths of companies, big, large, emerging sectors, um, you know, other sub verticals and, and I, debt equity. And I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's an experience that's very hard to beat. No doubt, because both Mike and myself came through the analyst programs as well. So we know a lot about those uh, Excel and PowerPoint uh, all-nighters. <laughs> so I feel you there. I was wondering, getting into customers' bank business, can you describe some of the major lines of business that you guys offer? Sure, absolutely. So we are a community bank um, with a national reach. And what we're essentially trying to do across the board is to use some of the business models that are out there in uh, in niche banks or banks that have that are excelling in, in, in various lending verticals or deposit generation verticals. We're trying to sort of model a quote unquote bank of the future. And I don't mean that necessarily solely in a technology, from a technology perspective, but truly on what are the things that matter? You know, is it just scale? Is it focused on, a, on, on, on a niche vertical? Is it credit risk management? Is it interest rate risk management? Really sort of thinking very thoughtfully about how to design, you know, a bank from the, the ground up. And that's been in the customer's bank DNA well before I joined. It's essentially a, a startup bank in 2009 of what would have been a failing um, FDIC assist deal where the, where the management team kind of came in, recapitalized a $250 million bank called New Century Bank, eventually renamed it to Customers Bank, which is the bank that we have today. And it's grown you know, uh, predominantly organically. So with that lens, we have community banking CNI uh, that's geographically focused mostly in the Northeast, but also Chicago, D.C., New England, Boston, Providence. Recently, we've expanded in North Carolina, Florida, and Texas. Um, and then uh, we have commercial real estate, multifamily real estate, which the multifamily is, again, focused in the Northeast, but we do have some, some national assets as well. And then we have our, our national businesses, so led by mortgage warehouse lending, so banking for mortgage companies. Um, so to give you perspective, these are warehouse lines to, to mortgage companies. We funded 2% of U.S. mortgages in 2020. Wow. Um, so really a big player in the space through those lines. The average balance may only be 3 to $4 billion at a time, 
But when you think about that and the churn that's happening under those lines on an annual basis, it kind of helps put things into perspective as to how integral you know, we are or have been in the industry. Then we have specialty lend, other specialty lending verticals like lender finance, so lending to uh, mid-market credit funds who are uh, uh, issuing credit, uh, sorry, levered loans to, to private equity deals, as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a fund finance business, uh, which is lending to capital calls and subscription lines. We have an SBA lending business, which kind of falls under our community banking. Um, and of course, we have cash management, treasury management, deposit products, you know, across the board to service our, our customers. So that's the commercial side of the business. And then on the consumer side, you know, we have uh, really uh, the, the majority of our platform there, as opposed to going through the traditional mortgages and HELOCs, et cetera, that we have that, you know, across the board, we are predominantly, we have 150,000 digital consumers that are predominantly personal loans, student loan refi, those types of specialty online first, digital first customers right. um, that uh, that bank with the bank. And we're trying to establish a similar platform for small business customers and small business lending. And uh, the impetus for that is obviously everyone uses the buzzword small businesses are underserved and underutilized, but it's very difficult to develop profitable products and services for those businesses. But we did over 300,000 PPP loans and we acquired at least a quarter million, I think, or so, plus or minus, unique customers through that process. Um, and we're offering them digital 7A, SBA, digital 7A products, where we think we're the only bank in the country who has a, a 30-day digital-only underwriting process for an SBA loan, term loans, revolving line of credits, et cetera. So really like a digital branch, digital-first customer is a strategy that's emerging within customers' banks. And now, a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest-growing alternative investment solution providers, with a suite of institutional-caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF, with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. I did notice that you guys seem to be extremely successful with respect to the PPP loan program. Can you get into the details on how COVID affected customers' bank and how you capitalized on that? Sure. So, you know, the the arc of what happened in hindsight makes it seem like it's all you know, rosy, and we we built a lot of capital and acquired a lot of customers, and and you know, uh, acqu- you know, made a lot of origination fee in in, in the process. But when you t- sort of take a step back in the throes of the fog of of COVID, um, which really felt like war for the first couple of weeks, everyone <laughs> yeah. kind of remembers it. Yeah. Um, you know, we uh, we really focused on portfolio management of our existing customers, and we were really talking to every customer on a weekly basis. So we just did a little bit of an all hands on deck, um, and we added. Uh, credit uh, management, portfolio management tools. We actually started, uh, partnered with a group called Oak North in the middle of COVID to be able to help us think about proactive credit monitoring as well, using third-party data to focus on our portfolios so that we were eventually, once we took the, the, the manual process off, that we were focusing on only the customers or the verticals that were at higher risk, which was not high risk based upon what you thought in your head. It was a combination of what you thought in your head plus what the data was showing you, uh, which I think is a very unique perspective that, you know, to have, especially of a bank of our size. Having said that, you know, we started a PPP process for our existing customers. We started what was a digital application 
tool mm -hmm. for our customers. So nothing more than just taking the PDF, populating it by typing in keystrokes and then pre-populating the PDF and signing. That's nothing. There's no rocket science to that. But when that came out in the middle of PPP, that's all you could really do. Right. But we noticed we were getting smaller and smaller applicants. We initially had a lot of lookalikes, like customers who you know looked like our traditional customers um, that we were now had been chasing for years and suddenly were coming to us and you know, moving over all their business. Because one thing people don't remember initially in PPP, which is why folks had a lot of success converting customers is there was a queue and you thought you were, if you didn't get in queue, you were never going to get PPP funds. Yeah. Right. And that, that changed over, over time. Um, and both programs last year and this year, eventually though there was more money than demand at some point in time. I mean, there was still demand in the last days, but it was smaller and smaller and smaller. So arguably the folks that needed it, you know, kind of got in line and, and were served. So we were able to build a lot of goodwill first with the larger customers, but then importantly, we started, we realized with these smaller customers, it made sense to start trying to find folks that would help us package and process some of these applications. So we set up a bunch of fintech relationships with some of the, some folks that we already had relationships with. We connected with them via API. They were sending us referrals, either a top of the funnel lead or maybe somewhere in the middle that was more of a hot lead and, 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 uh, and when I say lead, it's more about did this person apply to 10 different people with incomplete information or is this package, you know, does it look like a full application that you can now process and go through loan sizing and KYC, KYB type process. And that's sort of how we approached it. We democratized the entire process. So you didn't have to be a customer's bank customer. In fact, I think 99% of funds we sent to other banks. So we didn't add the friction of trying to force these customers to open up accounts with us. And we really just had a mission-driven approach to getting the money out. Right. And I think that's really what helped fuel our success on the stats of, of the 300,000, 325,000 loans and the $10 billion almost was really because we had that type of a mindset of just getting the money out to those who needed it the most. Right. And when, what we did this year, which was, which was also very different is, than we did last year, is we white-labeled our PPP-as-a-service type product hmm. for very large banks, for small banks, for you know, credit unions, for African-American Chamber of Commerce, Hispanic Chamber of Commerce of New Jersey. You know, we kind of really just went to minority groups, nonprofits across the board, gave them a portal that looked exactly like you know, their origination in addition to our own similar channels as last year. And it really proved to be very successful and we made a very big impact. And, you know, and, uh, and uh, our, our bank was the first customer of this PPP as a service. So uh, this year, our current team stepped away from PPP, our relationship managers, et cetera, and our technology group led and our SBA group. They're the two, the two, the two groups that really led our PPP efforts. And technology seems to be a major theme at Customers Bank. One other recent innovation that I noticed that I want to dig into today is the Customers Bank Instant Token. And I was wondering, how does this new token that you guys are developing, how does it enable blockchain-based digital payments? Sure. So um, let me first sort of give some perspective as to why we, we decided that, that this was an important strategic initiative for the company. So when you think about legacy rails, and we call legacy rails ACH and Fedwire, we call them yeah. legacy but nothing really else has come out to sort of displace them, right? It's sort of it's really there to to process checks yep. in a quicker way. It's kind of the le the legacy of why the origins of why we have these rails. It could take several business days. It could take five or six calendar days if it straddles a weekend for your ACH or or wire to go through. That doesn't really make any sense. Just from very basic working capital efficiency, the fact that these are dumb transfers as well 
where the, the receiving bank could bounce it back. You don't actually know if it goes through or processes and there can be something, some data missing, something missing. And you have no data transfer that goes along with the payment. So we have had a view that real-time payments is going to become ubiquitous, just like it has started to in the consumer space, just generally across the commercial space. And you know, when you think about a commercial customer as a business owner or a consumer, it's easy to understand why this makes sense. But when you think about a commercial customer as a large financial exchange or, you know, or high volume commercial landlord, and you think about API enablement, and you think about all of the efficiencies that can arise within an organization by having real-time payments and settlement in an automated way connected with their own internal platforms, it really becomes a no-brainer. So the question is when, not if, that this is going to be become table stakes. And I think the I think the answer to that is probably three to five years, uh, but uh, because I think folks understand that this is important. Now, why blockchain? It doesn't need to be done on the blockchain, but we have a view that, again, this is going to become table stakes. There's probably going to need be a need. While this is intra-bank, so both sides of the, the settlement and the transfer need to be customers, bank customer, eventually that may not, that should not be the case. In fact, you'll have a closed loop system that may not, you know, that will be um, leapfrogged by something that's more interbank. So that was the thought process on the blockchain and uh, and also the other uses of the blockchain. It allowed us to think about how do, how does the ERC-20 protocol work and what are the different applications of smart contracts and capital markets transactions and loan participations. While it may not happen on our, you know, tacit enabled, uh, you know, real-time payments platform, you know, those those are the different things that we want to start flex our muscles on. So the way it actually works is, is that you open up a DDA account with Customers Bank, you you transfer the, that money to an omnibus account. And for each dollar you transfer, you get a token. So it's a minting of a token. Once you have that token, on the it gets transferred and you transfer it to the next customer's bank customer on the Ethereum blockchain that now moves to that customer. That customer now has a token and that they, they have a dollar in the omnibus account that's for their benefit that they can now convert back to a DDA dollar as well. All of that can happen instantly. Obviously, it's a multi-step process. So if you're using a mouse in a user interface, it takes a couple of steps. If you're using an automated uh, you know, API enablement, it can happen like this. So I think that, uh, sorry, I used the snap of my finger uh, <laughs> for, for Mike and Julian on the phone, but it can happen instantly. And there is innovation for instant transfer, but instant transfer and instant settlement does not really happen uh, broadly in the, in the banking world. Right. And so just to uh, clarify and summarize, the customer's bank instant token effectively enables uh, much, much quicker transfers for your customers and is sort of meant as a replacement to the legacy ACH system. That's right. That's right. And what I would add is, is that, you know, we have, we saw an immediate need in the digital asset space, because I think that's one of the, the important aspects of the CBIT customer bank instant token, you know, story uh, for us. And so we actually ended up raising a billion and a half dollars of non-interest bearing deposits at the end of the third quarter. So that was about, you know, eight weeks ago in anticipation of the launch that happened last month. Okay. Um, so we had about 20 or so inaugural customers, uh, you know, that were either on board at the end of the quarter or, or onboarded since uh, in the fourth quarter that have uh, joined the platform that are integrating via API that have started to fund their deposit accounts, also opening up operating accounts um, who are, uh, you know, keystone customers for us, mostly led by the digital asset space. But we also have customers, in, you know, with supply chain integration. Uh, we have real estate customers. Uh, we have mortgage customers who are all, and broker-dealer customers who are all in various stages of understanding the use case, the value proposition, and the case study for their type of business. 
that our relationship managers and our business development team are really working hard on. And our thesis is you provide payments for free, you get deposits for free, more or less, right? I say that more broadly, but we are not charging for this service. Um, and you uh, allow some of your sales folks in a largely, let's call a spade a spade, the banking industry is a commoditized business where you have to differentiate on usually it's service. So now it's becoming technology um, and having extra products and services that the customer doesn't anticipate they need, but once they use it, it transforms the way that they operate the day-to-day business and you're not charging for it. That really builds long-term um, uh, sticky relationships and, uh, and it's the type of PPP effect that we saw when you were transforming, you know, the way that someone applied for a PPP loan and was funded. Similarly, you know, we're seeing, you know, transformational opportunities here on the real time payment side. And so really, if one of the hearings correct, that you're just using it as customer acquisition um, to, to basically be able to cross sell uh, different products to some new customers, as well as enhance the relationships with your current customer base. When you look further into the future, do you see any other, uh, I guess, potential products that will be a lot more profitable relative to your current product base um, that that you'll be able to innovate in, into the future here? Sure, it's a you know it's it's a great question. So um, so we're trying to develop the products and services on both the consumer side as well as the small business side, where we're creating a, a digital bundle for digital first customers. Um, whether that's a SBA loan, a commercial line of credit, revolving line of credit on the consumer side, auto loans, you know, home mortgages in a truly digital fashion, supported by an experienced backer, banker on the back end. That's the way that we're thinking about those types of products. So we're accelerating that type of digital branch customer acquisition type model, whereas traditional banks um, are more focused on creating an omni-channel experience for their existing customers. We truly want to create a customer acquisition machine for the smaller ticket, you know, customers using technology and, and the process and the learnings that we've created over the past couple of years. Now, on the more traditional commercial side, we're, we're you know, in advanced stages of thinking about other opportunities um, on the blockchain. So, you know, while, um, you know, we, to give you perspective, we sold a couple hundred million dollars of loans in the past two or three quarters um, uh, from a gain on sale perspective, some on the SBA side, some on the consumer side. And I think there's going to be a tremendous opportunity. And we have intermediaries and investment banks and those types of folks that sometimes have to sit in the middle of these types of transactions and legal documentation, and diligence and NDAs. And that whole process can really be, forget about the cost that you can save, the time and the bandwidth that you can save by giving people access to a limited amount of information where you're not transferring PII, personal uh, information of customers, um, and allowing them to either participate or to fully acquire those loans. Those are the types of innovations that we're thinking about that could be very ubiquitous again in the future. And this is a long way out. But if you can be a leader, you can start creating some of those larger corporate type relationships at Customers Bank that we historically haven't had as a smaller community bank. But we've grown a lot. You know, in the last two years since I've joined, we've grown from 10 billion to 20 billion. Um, so there's a we, we have now we're now a top 100 bank in the country. These are the types of things because we happen to we happen to have come off of a smaller base and more agile and branch light. And with a, with, without technical debt, in fact, we have technical assets, you know, on our side that allows us to, to be a little bit more agile today than we probably would be had we been a much larger bank coming into this. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate. Do you want to diversify your investment portfolio while benefiting the planet? The Accelerate Carbon Negative Bitcoin ETF 
symbol ABTC on the Toronto Stock Exchange, provides investors with exposure to Bitcoin while protecting the environment. Accelerate implements a global tree planting campaign to sequester carbon emissions and help fight climate change. Up to 10% of ABTC's 69 basis point management fee will be allocated to Accelerate's annual tree planting campaign. For each $1,000 invested in ABTC, an estimated one net ton of carbon dioxide is expected to be sequestered each year. Buy Bitcoin, save the planet. Find out more at investabtc.com. Something that you mentioned earlier um, with the instant token was that it was on the Ethereum blockchain, um, that it's an ERC token. When when you were looking at different blockchains um, to, to support this token, what 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 came what what criteria were you looking at? Were you, did you look at different blockchains, such as Solana or any of the other competing blockchains with Ethereum? Um, what what went into that decision? Sure, uh, you know we did. Uh, we looked at, uh, at 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 the competing blockchains. You know, going back to January of this year, believe it or not, there weren't that that many options, and it's more about what is the that's the layer. It's what's built on top of it, and who are the companies that were building on top of those various you know, those various, uh, you know, blockchain infrastructures. So I think there's been a lot more advancement, you know, since, since January when we, when we launched in terms, especially in terms of speed and gas charges. Now we've building an intra bank, you know, ledger here. So we, we aren't subject to those types of variable costs and some of those, uh, some of those speed limitations. But if we ever go interbank, we'll have to be very cognizant of those two, those types of things. So it's going to be, we're, you know, the, the crypto industry, while the banking industry, while customers bank, is evolving very fast. The crypto industry is evolving uh, at the speed of light. Um, and so a lot is changing. So we'll continue to be monitoring. But I think the key for us is, is that, and we could work with multiple blockchains for various different products and services. So we're not just wedded only to Ethereum. That is what we're using for our real-time payment solutions today. But uh, you know, I think that the, 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 the types of things that I'm talking about, capital markets, et cetera, that's on a different blockchain that we're sort of evaluating right now. And I think that um, eventually, the key is is that we view blockchain as an interesting way um, to launch future products and services. Um, and whatever blockchain we eventually use, we'll need to sort of balance speed, reliability, and cost. And also, who are the entrepreneurs and the developers who are building on top of those blockchains? Yeah, the blockchain industry and cryptocurrencies are just moving, as you indicated, at the speed of light. So sometimes it's difficult to stay up to date on all the myriad of various projects happening. So it's uh, quite the sight to see, but so much to learn. I was wondering from an, in both an investor's perspective and an executive perspective, what are some of the key operational and financial metrics that are important to you, you as CEO, where you're looking to drive these metrics in operations, financial performance, but also important for investors that they like to see? Sure. So I'll first address sort of more the external facing investor metrics, then I'll talk a little bit about how uh, you know uh, I try to manage the business, you know, from a real from a reporting perspective internally. Um, from an external perspective, uh, at the end of the day, you know, tangible book value creation in the banking industry is incredibly important, but it's really a byproduct of, of earnings growth and earnings power and sound credit management, right? Meaning pr- protecting that book. So you know <clears throat> what uh, what we did in PPP really helped. Um, accelerate. We will have probably 
doubled our book value over a two-year period um, through our efforts in tremendous earnings growth, you know, uh, plus, you know, plus the PPP revenue, which was, uh, you know, which is approaching, you know, about plus or minus $400 million of pre-tax revenues, you know, that we generated through that effort through a combination of origination fee, um, you know, plus, uh, plus interest income. Now, what's interesting about Customers Bank from an investor perspective is we were undervalued going into um, the pandemic. Now, the reasons for undervaluation were we had stopped growth while we were divesting a, um, uh, you know, a fintech, which we divested earlier this year in January, Bank Global Technologies, which is now publicly listed and, uh, and with no, uh, no ownership by Customers Bank today, um, as well as capital. Uh, and we were operating at lower than peer capital levels, but we had lower than peer credit risk. And like, for example, our mortgage warehouse business, self-liquidating every couple of weeks. So you didn't necessarily need to have as much capital allocated towards it in a, in a no credit risk type business. Nothing really goes wrong within a couple of weeks of owning you know, a mortgage. Nonetheless, uh, you know, we listened to our, our investors and we built, we built the capital um, and, uh, um, you know, and we divested Bank Mobile. And I think that that has really um, resulted in tremendous uh, stock run for customers' bank. We're you know, up 200% year to date. It's actually 400% if you look at since Q3 of last year, um, so year over year. Um, which is uh, which is incredible, but we still have a little bit of a delta to go. So, to answer your question, a couple of things that I focus on are are also price to earnings multiple of our from a valuation perspective of our future year. So, spending a lot of times with the investment community and the analyst community and helping them understand the levers for growth. As a CEO of a publicly traded company, you don't want to necessarily be in the habit of giving quarterly and annual EPS guidance. That means that there's not enough understanding of your core business and how you're running it. But I do think in this transition period, the, the bank has really transformed. It is very important to help people understand the investment or lack thereof that you're making, that you've already made, that they're enjoying the benefit of, as well as the earnings power and operating leverage that you have in the business. So that, those, that's the way that we try to think about it from a valuation perspective. Now, what I think is interesting and differentiated at Customers Bank, especially of a bank of our size, is we, um, you know, we believe in using a lot of the tools that we have, whether it's the data warehouse, the analytics that's on top of it, or Salesforce, and it's, you know, allowing the management to have access to real-time data, real-time, not you know the daily report that comes every day or a monthly report that comes two weeks after the month, truly at your fingertips access to data that goes not just the CFO CEO level data, but the Head of Pennsylvania and you know's data to help drive their community bank for deposit growth and, and loan generation. Having everyone have access to that type of data on the relationship manager side, have access to your full portfolio uh, of data and having access to third party data to layer on against your own data and the financial data from the company, you know, banks are reasonably spoiled. We start doing credit reviews on, you know, twenty, you know, nineteen um, you know, financials in the middle of uh, 2020, which got delayed from, by COVID by a couple of months because people weren't filing their taxes. And suddenly you're doing, you know, you're almost in 2021 and you're using 2019 financials and the whole world has changed. Now, what sense does that make? And that's the, the type of change that we're trying to do. Yes, you might still need to do that for regulatory purposes and historic purposes and, you know, documentation. But at the same time, layering that and changing the mindset of having access to real-time data is a big focus that we're, you know, endeavoring on, you know, at customers back. Something that we're always very curious about are, you know, is like who have some of the uh, the most important mentors that you've had in your career? 
Sure, it's a it's a, a great question. I think there's a you know a lot of folks you know over the years whether it's in on the real estate side of the business or um, you know or whether it's just in the home uh, you know learning from uh, compassion and empathy and leadership from from my mother and how that how that sort of changes the way you know some people say would you rather be uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on a podcast would you rather lead you know lead as an asshole or you know lead with fear. <laughs> you know, or would lead with compassion. And I think that, you know, I take uh, a lot more of the latter approach, approach there and, and sort of the servant leadership type approach, which, which kind of came from the home. And to continue the family dynamic, it, 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 it cannot be unsaid. You know, my, my father being a, you know, a banking, longtime banking CEO of a Fortune 500 bank, it was inevitable. He was also on the board of my, um, uh, of, of Megala, my real estate private equity firm, uh, and provided you know a tremendous amount of leadership and mentoring, and having access to that type of uh, support, uh, you know, before I joined the bank and through my career, and, and even after, is really unparalleled. Yeah, certainly, it's helpful if your dad's a banking veteran, and it's not surprising that you got into the business and are excelling uh, in banking. So. Just before we let you go, Sam, I was wondering, as an investor takes a look at the banking sector, I mean, there's hundreds of banks to choose from, and you indicated, oh, it's somewhat commoditized, do we differentiate on technology? If an investor was uh, looking to invest in the bank, why should they choose Customers Bank? Sure. So, you know, I think that that's actually a reasonably easy, easy one for me to answer. You know, in the banking industry, um, there are very few tech forward stories, especially of banks above 10 billion. I think there's a couple number of banks below 10 billion that are doing creative and thoughtful things, but they're capped in their growth and they may not reach the, the level of attention uh, of many of folks uh, who are focused on the larger banks. So having a tech forward approach, a proprietary you know, tech stack within our third party technology providers, whether it's a lender platform that brings together Salesforce and Encino, whether it's middleware that sits on top of our core, we truly have industry-leading technology inside of our four walls, um, and that allows us to be innovative and agile. So um, we expect to have far. Uh, we expect to have one of the best deposit franchise, deposit generating franchises in the country, and I think we've showed it in the last couple of weeks and months, and we'll continue to show it next year. That coupled with best-in-class loan growth, especially of a bank of our size. You know, we're projecting double-digit loan growth in, in 2022, and we've guided the street towards that. Um, if you can do that, plus you can, um, you know, plus you can uh, generate the deposits that are your raw materials to fuel that growth, and you do that with sound credit management, which I think we showed folks that we are in inherently low credit risk business lines with high operating leverage. Those combined with that technology efficiency um, should result in us being one of the most efficient banks in the country. And that's our goal, uh, you know, in the next couple of years is to, we have right now a 40% or below 40% efficiency ratio, right. um, which means we are one of the most, one of the most efficient banks in the country, but we have one-time revenue flowing yeah. through right now from PPP. And those training wheels go off in 2023. And I think in 2023 is when we have a real opportunity to show people all of the transformational things we've done behind the scenes uh, to make ourselves a lot more efficient. And if you can have the, the, the growth levers, plus the credit management, plus the efficiency with all of the technology upside, 
it really, uh, I think, comes together into, as you can hear, I'm very passionate about this, a very compelling investment story. And proof is in the pudding. As you indicated, stock up 400% year over year. And if investors are interested in learning more about or potentially investing in Customers Bank, it trades under the ticker symbol C-U-B-I. So Sam, thank you for coming on the show today, sharing your story and all the very interesting technological innovations happening at Customers Bank. It's super interesting. So thank you. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, Mike, for so, so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.